the History Show with Mars Duncan. Good evening. On this week's programme... Liam Tobin, who was 21 at that stage and was there in the garden that night, he wrote in his account, I looked at him and I registered a vow to myself that I would deal with him at some time in the future. The RIC officer, his wife and the tale of revolutionary revenge. We'll revisit the story behind the recovery of Caravaggio's masterpiece, The Taking of Christ. Also... When we're looking back at the War of Independence, I mean, the, the advantages with the British Army, they're the ones that are going to have these grenades. They're mass-produced, very, very effective. As a War of Independence-era grenade was fished out of the Grand Canal this week, we'll ask how many armaments from the conflict are still out there. Plus... So the campaign in Ireland was, if you like, a front in the European war, as well as being a war to decide the fate of this country, along with that of Scotland and England. We'll wind the clock back to the late 17th century and hear about the history that underpins the new novel 1691, set in a fateful year in determining the history of Ireland. But to begin this evening... Next month, we'll see the 100th anniversary of the killing of a Royal Irish Constabulary Officer, District Inspector Percival Lee Wilson. You may know the name because Wilson, along with his wife, Mary, are forever associated with the Caravaggio painting, The Taking of Christ, which hangs in the National Gallery. That long-lost masterpiece was identified in the Jesuit Hall in Dublin in 1990. Mary Lee Wilson had donated the painting to the Order in the 1930s in gratitude for their support following the shooting of her husband. I'm joined now by radio and theatre producer Ethna Hand, who's researched the lives of Percival and Mary Lee Wilson and also that uh, rediscovered Caravaggio painting. Ethna, you're very welcome to the History Show. Now, we have to mention, first of all, that you have a personal connection to this episode in Irish history through your grandfather, who was the famous Liam Tobin, the deputy director of intelligence to uh, Michael Collins. Tell us about that connection. Yes, Liam Tobin was my mother's father and he would have died in 1963, but back in 1920 and on the date of June the 15th, 1920, he and Frank Thornton travelled down from Dublin to Gorey and they were joined there by local brigade people and they... They waited around, actually, for two or three days in order to do what they came to do, which was to assassinate Percival Lee Wilson. And I would have not really known that when I was growing up because we didn't think that our grandfather, we knew he was the Deputy Director of Intelligence and that he was Michael Collins' right-hand man and all those lovely things. And he was only in his 20s, so it was very much part of his early days, which he then never spoke about again. But we knew that he had been involved, but not that he ever pulled a trigger and certainly when we were kids, we were brought in to see his gun in the National Museum. And it was a pretty kind of ladylike looking gun, I thought. And But we were very clear that this was not a used item. It was just something that they all had to carry. But of course we were wrong. And uh, you find out these things as you get older and wiser. And when you realise that actually, you know, again, because he never spoke about it, maybe I don't know if he was involved in other assassinations. He was certainly involved in ordering assassinations. Um, but in this case, yes, there was a direct connection between him and the killing of Percival Lee Wilson in Gorey in 1920. Now, he was there for a specific purpose, also there on the orders of Michael Collins with Frank Thornton, who would have been one of the, the leading members of Collins's squad. But he, to some extent, and Thornton and Collins, they were settling an old score from 1916. What had, what had Percival Lee Wilson done in 1916? 
Well, this is where it really was a case of an RIC officer who was had a particularly bad night and Percival Lee Wilson's fate was kind of sealed in some ways by a night in the Rotunda Gardens, which was the area at the end of 1916. The area around the Rotunda Hospital was used to house or to hold the prisoners, of whom there were many. And Percival Lee Wilson was one of the people who was on guard that night as such. And he he kind of excelled in the sense that his name crops up on many, many different people's witness statements from that night. His mental state was probably not very good at the time because he was based in Ashburn and that would have been a tricky place because during the week he had certainly been witness to a lot of funerals after the uh, rebel forces had killed eight of the RIC officers in Ashburn. But whatever the reasons, he ended up being in Dublin that night and the descriptions vary from, you know, this man who was kind of didn't seem in control of himself, wearing a smoking cap with fancy tassels, holding up a match to the prisoners' faces, saying, come and look at the animals. He was really verbally and physically offensive, both uh, in t- from Sean McEntee's report, he was saying mostly very offensive to Ned Daly and Tom Clark. He strip-searched Tom Clark in a kind of a sadistic way, and uh, there's a few references to that. And Liam Tobin, who was 21 at that stage and was there in the garden that night, he wrote in his account, I looked at him and I registered a vow to myself that I would deal with him at some time in the future. No. Percival Lee Wilson was somebody of a military background, but his military career certainly appears to have been very short. Well, yes, this is where I was interested then. I was trying to working on this a few years ago to try and look at it as a script. And I thought, well, I needed to, to learn more about Percival. And there was no real information about him, about what happened when he went to the war, as in when he went to the front, because he did. He signed up and he ended up in France in, in 1917. So after his ignominious day or night, which I'm sure he didn't think was too bad, he ended up going to the front. And I went over to London to the military history archives and a very kind of very sad, small folder of information on his war record. And the headline on it is Adverse Report on PLW, on um, Percival Lee Wilson. Basically, he was there for one day on the 17th of April 1917, and he kind of disgraced himself in the trenches, so much so that the man in charge of the battalion uh, immediately wrote to his com- commander saying, this man has little or no knowledge of discipline, his his nerves were in a bad state, I place no confidence whatever in him, either in attack or defence. He did not carry out his duties as he'd been instructed, um, and he basically wanted to make sure that this man was never put in charge of men of action or under fire. And that's exactly what happened. So he basically was taken out of there as fast as possible. His uh, The field marshal on the 21st of May, Field Marshal Peters, wrote to the war office saying, this officer is quite unfit to serve in a unit, and he, he recommended that he be sent home immediately. So very much tail between his legs, not in glories. I mean, in references to him, official references, it says he came home after being injured. But what I was reading that day in that kind of, as I say, very slim folder, was just a, a man's uh, military career that never happened. And he came back to London, tail between his legs, tried very hard to get back to Ireland because his wife was in Ireland, because he had married a Cork Catholic woman, daughter of a solicitor, unusual mixed marriage. And they were happily married and living in Ashburn, as I say, the previous year. But anyway, he, he did get back to Ireland, but they basically tried to find a quiet backwater for him because of his reputation. And he was sent to Gorey, which was a quiet enough place then from 17, 18, 19, then 20, when he didn't live to see the end of 1920. Tell us about the shooting in June of 1920, because 
because of the Bureau of Ministry History and the witness statements, there are a number of witnesses, and the witnesses themselves were people who were actually involved in the assassination. Um, Liam Tobin and Frank Thornton come down from Dublin, and the job, however, could have been done just as easily, probably, by the local IRA volunteers who were also involved in the assassination. Yes, I think, I mean, I do, I do think that there was definitely more going on here. And I think that the fact that Liam Tobin had that sense that he was going to deal with this man and himself and Frank Thornton, who would have been quite senior at that stage in 1920. So they came down from Dublin and the local reports and from the local activists. Um, so Joe McMahon, John Whelan and the driver was Michael Sinnott. But their their accounts are very detailed about how they didn't know why it was so important, but that these two fellas came down from Dublin on the train. They stayed around. They stayed a Saturday night, Sunday night, Monday night, trying to finish what they had come down to do, which was to kill this man. But he was hung over on a couple of the mornings, didn't get up and do the normal things of going to collect his newspaper, which is where they were going to ambush him. But on the Tuesday, on the 15th of June, uh, he did collect his newspaper and he did walk back to his house and they had set up, a, a, you know, pretending that the car was having breakdown troubles and they were on the road and they all fired at him. So, uh, you know, in that way that they, they would have all been responsible for his his actual murder. So they left him there. The, one of the, one of the, they're kind of jaunty, some of these tales, unfortunately. And it's like, well, Frank Thornton picked up the newspaper, whistled a tune and they got into the car and they drove away. Now, they completely never got, nobody was caught for that murder. So it was a, a kind of an extraordinary. There's a lot of stories about what happened to the car and how they escaped and they went across country and ended up getting, Liam and Frank got back to Dublin safely, I suppose. And, uh, and then what happened down at, outside of his house was that his wife came out, his now widow came out and he died on the road outside their house. Tell us then about the life of Mary Lee Wilson after the assassination of her husband. Well, Marilee Wilson, she was a very interesting woman in in the sense of after he died, she kind of changed her life in the sense that she left Gory, she came up to Dublin, she um, enrolled as a mature student in in medicine. She became one of only three women to qualify as she ended up being a paediatrician. So at the age of 41, she became a consultant at the National Children's Hospital. She lived for the rest of her life. She didn't die until 1971 and she lived in uh, Fitzwilliam Place in Dublin quite an interesting woman and at the beginning when I was researching this um, I thought god I'd really like to know more about her and the fact that obviously she then discovered the Caravaggio but she was in her own right a very interesting person and she became very much more Catholic it seems after his death and she had an extraordinary house full of furniture and uh, she she bred dachshund dogs. She was a chain smoker. She had a very, very good close friend in the Archbishop of Dublin, John Charles McQuaid, who, according to some of the women I spoke to, she rented out some of the upstairs rooms to students and, and younger women. And they said that John Charles's car would be there two or three nights a week and he'd be in chatting. One of his relations, a young cousin of his, lived in the house at one stage. And um, Marie Lee Wilson... Basically, she had friends, also other groups of women coming in to say the rosary. She was involved in the kind of strong Catholic women's group at that point where there's details that I read about how she was against children's playgrounds being mixed in the playgrounds in this in the parks in Dublin. She was very against uh, mixing the genders. Even in hospitals, she was very strongly saying that there must be a boys, a little boys ward and a little girls ward. 
So she was, yeah, she, she seemed to have been a very, a very strong character. And she then did, she did two things in terms of, of uh, historically making it so relevant is that one, she commissioned Harry Clark to design a stained glass window, one of his best windows. And it was in memory of her dead husband, Percival. And it's down in Gorey in the Church of Ireland in Gorey, a really stunning picture or stained glass window of St. Stephen. And she was, in some ways, there was an ambiguous message on the window because she got made sure that he wrote the words "Lay not this sin to their charge." Um, and anyway, that was one bit. She was, she was, she knew Harry Clark. And then the second thing was that she bought a painting, um, one of the many paintings she had, and she bought it at this painting at an auction in Scotland. And the story is well documented. And but it was twenty years after her death. She had she gave it uh, to the Jesuits as a thank you for helping her through her grieving for her dead husband. And um, twenty years after her death, it was discovered to be the taking of Christ by Caravaggio. What did she think she had bought in Glasgow at that auction? She was she thought she had bought a painting by Gerard van Honthurst, who was quite a well known Dutch painter. Like she didn't think she was buying nothing. She knew it was something nice, good, and she recognised that. And he, like we have other, the National Gallery does have other von Honthurst paintings. So, you know, it, it was called The Taking of Christ and whether or not it was attributed as a copy, because obviously there was a, the lost Caravaggio was famous even in those days. But she didn't pay a huge amount for it, but she paid a, a certain amount for it. It was an estate auction that she was at in, in uh, Scotland. Um, and then she hung it in her house for 10 years. Like, you know, there's one of the women who lived upstairs said that there was lots of dark paintings and Heppelworth chairs and these Dachshunds and this woman who chain smoked. And like, it does sound extraordinary. She sounds extraordinary. And then she decided she'd give it as a gift to the Jesuits. And they gave it as a gift to the National Gallery for all of our pleasure. Now, you've talked about your family connection to the to the story through your grandfather, Liam Tobin. Has your family or has anybody in your family ever made contact with the relatives of Percival Lee Wilson and Mary Lee Wilson? No, in the sense of, I mean, in the research, I wasn't able to find many relatives, but there was a um, a story. My mum, who is now sadly deceased, was involved with the Parnell Society. She set that up with some friends. And in one of their events, they were in the Gory Church, that Church of Ireland Church. And I think there was a tour being given. And there was definitely a story that, that in the group, mum was keeping quite quiet about it, because obviously she knows her connection through her dad to the Percival events um but somebody else in the group said that they were a, a, a relative of the lee wilson so they got to talk to each other in that extraordinary church and shook hands and you know just talked about the extraordinary connections through history and i did meet somebody else who runs one of the walking tours who said that a, a relative of percival lee wilson at one stage had identified themselves so you know i mean i do think that you know we talk about history being for uh, written by winners and he wasn't at all by any means a winner but I do try to remember him and I think it's worth remembering him in the anniversary of, of his death in June of uh, 1920. Well it's a fascinating story Ethna thank you very much indeed for uh, joining us on the History Show and sharing that uh, story of Percival and Mary Lee Wilson and illuminating the narrative behind the long lost Caravaggio painting The Taking of Christ that's uh, Ethna Hand there. painting we've just been talking about and that story behind it is obviously an illustration of just how close we are to the violence of the War of Independence period. After the break we'll be hearing about how the conflict is still very much with us when it comes to the munitions that are regularly discovered in Ireland like the revolutionary era grenade that was fished out of the Grand Canal earlier this week. 
Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back. On Wednesday evening, Harold's Cross Bridge in Dublin was closed off while Garthi and members of the Defence Forces dealt with a grenade dating from the War of Independence. It was found in the Grand Canal close to the bridge, taken from the water and rendered safe. But it got us wondering, how many century-old grenades and other munitions are from the Revolutionary Era are still out there? And how dangerous are they? I'm joined now by Lar Joy, Port Heritage Director at Dublin Port and former curator of the military collections at the National Museum. Lar, you're very welcome indeed to the History Show. Thank you, Miles. Now, the discovery of these grenades in canals is actually a relatively common occurrence, it turns out. Yeah, if you look um, over the last kind of four or five years, this is happening maybe two or three times a year, um, quite spectacularly also uh, in some of the rivers because... A grenade was found in Balls Bridge in 2017, and this, if you're on the internet, you'll see some very dramatic footage of it being exploded by the bomb squad uh, there in place, uh, just uh, near the bridge in Balls Bridge. So they are popping up in and around Dublin, and many of them are, are, of course, a legacy of the War of Independence and the Civil War, when they were very, very prevalent. And of course, even since then, I suspect some have been thrown into the, the canal to be got rid of. So it has become a very, very common uh, event over the last couple of years. Now, the grenade that was found was called something called a Mills bomb. Is that the very kind of familiar, distinctive pineapple type grenade that we would have seen in countless war movies over the years? Yes, that's the, that's the one. Uh, invented by a gentleman called Mills uh, in 1915 and, and produced since millions and millions uh, in use uh, in the British Army and other armies right up uh, into the, the 1960s. Now replaced, of course, more by lighter uh, ones. But a very effective weapon uh, when, you, when you threw it at normally different times between four seconds and six seconds to explode. And then a, a killing range of about, uh, explosion range of, and wounding, killing people at about 20 metres uh, circular around the explosion. So quite an effective and nasty piece of, uh, of equipment. Um, and that's why they, even today they have to be treated with some safety. I mean, they, they are very dangerous to designed to do one thing. So if you do ever find one, uh, make sure that you don't touch it uh, and, and contact uh, the relevant authorities. So the cliche of pulling the pin and throwing, that's how it works. So um, a, a quick course on how to, to use a grenade. When you have a grenade, um, you'll, you'll, you'll see a pin, you pull out the pin, it has a lever. Um, and as you throw it, the lever will fall away from the grenade. And uh, once the lever falls away, the fuse will, will then set and then it'll explode uh, between uh, four seconds and, and six seconds. Grenade, different grenades have different uh, lengths of time. They found in, in World War II, you know, if you went up to, say, 10 seconds, there was a chance somebody might pick it up and throw it back at you. So that's why it's quite short. And they're very, you know, accidents with grenades are, are, are common enough. And people, when they're throwing them, don't throw them far enough. Or if you're in a trench and trying to throw them out of a trench, uh, sometimes they can get caught at the top of the trench and fall back on top of you. So they're very, very dangerous. And when uh, in armies, when you're throwing your grenades, they normally will have you in a pit, but also they have a safety pit that in the case that a grenade gets dropped on the ground of your trench or pit, uh, you have an area to run to or jump into to get away from the explosion. So with grenades, I, I think it's, it's a word of caution and, and what can can go wrong sometimes will go wrong. Now, these grenades that were found from the War of Independence period, would they likely have been part of the Crown Forces arsenal rather than the IRA's arsenal? 
Yes, so uh, when we're looking back at the War of Independence, I mean, the, the advantages with the British Army, they're the ones that are going to have these grenades. They're mass-produced, very, very effective. Um, and again, units like the Auxiliaries, um, who would have come into Ireland 100 years ago, uh, when you look at, say, the Kilmichael ambush, when, when you look at the equipment list set out by Tom Barry after the ambush, they're all carrying one or two grenades as well as you know, revolvers and, and rifles. They're very, very well equipped. And uh, in an ambush situation, grenades and throwing grenades are, are, are the ideal thing to have. The IRA themselves, of course, um, wouldn't have access to this kind of production mass-produced weapon. So they do make a big effort to make the steel casings for the grenades. So you'll find even today uh, in the National Museum and other museums, uh, these casings which are made in places like the Inchicore Railway Works, but also in small foundries all over the country, quite easy to make for anyone involved in steelworks. However, it's the, it's the, the difficulty the IRA had a lot of the time was the explosive material. And what you find is they're carrying out raids in the early days and, and Solhead Beg, the attack is on a RIC men who are guarding Jellignite. So looking for Jellignite was a big thing in, in 1919, but also trying to import explosives from England and then smuggled onto the various ferries coming into Dublin. So the, the, it's really trying to get that I mean, uh, the explosive in and then unite it with the, uh, the steel-made grenade shells and then of course, make a grenade. However, I mean, it, it, you know, the creation of the fuse and everything else, uh, many of the times when you look at the various ambushes that occur, especially in 1920 and into 21, um, you know, grenades are thrown, but they might necessarily uh, explode. So you're going to have a dud for whatever reason. Sometimes the explosive doesn't work. Sometimes the fuse doesn't work. Um, Inca Michael, Tom Barry starts the ambush uh, with a grenade, which does go off, uh, but I think that might have been a captured grenade. So, yeah, the advantage is definitely with the British authorities with their grenades, um, but the IRA are playing catch-up. And by you know, May of 1921, you're starting to see a greater use of landmines and explosions to counter the uh, introduction of armoured cars and armoured trucks uh, by the British, the RIC and the auxiliaries and the army. And when the Crown Forces withdrew from Ireland in 1922, why didn't they take all their grenades with them? Why are we finding them dumped in rivers and canals? I think the whole of 1922, it's kind of people kind of forget that it was actually the whole year of the British Army vacating uh, huge numbers of military barracks. And I always have a suspicion that quartermasters clearing out their stores and having maybe one so too many grenades uh, were coming up with a solution of, of getting rid of excess of grenades that weren't officially on the books. About 20 years ago in the, in the, the National Museum in Collins Barracks during some building work, grenades were found in the barracks, uh, buried. And again, they came from that period. So you might imagine a, a quartermaster having a, a problem with his paperwork where he has too many grenades and it doesn't match what it says on the paper. So the best thing to do is, is get rid of the excess and just uh, dump them or get rid of them. And of course, the, the other element that you have with, with grenades is, you know, people, uh, when they see something kind of military, old, like, or not necessarily old, but kind of as a keepsake, might take these things home, which is also uh, quite a dangerous thing to do. What happened to the grenades in Collins Barracks that were found in Collins Barracks, which is, of course, is the, well, is the museum? Very similar to what happened this week, I mean, which has happened over the last couple of years. Um, the, the bomb squad were, were called in um, and they were taken away and later on disposed of. It would be nice to know the history of these grenades and to kind of find out if they have serial numbers and to kind of do the, the, the history, if you like, of them or the archaeology of them. However, you're never fully sure what state they are when you're found, they're found, so uh, safety is the dominant thing here. So they're taken away. They are recorded by the bomb squad and the details are recorded if they can be. Uh, and then a controlled explosion occurs because that's um, you can never take the risk. You, you can't just leave uh, a grenade uh, on a shelf and hope nothing will happen. So they have to be dealt with there and then. 
and safety is paramount. And have there been incidences where grenades have been retained as keepsakes and there have been tragic consequences, unfortunate consequences? There have. I mean, you, you come across occasions with collectors, you know, especially the, the fascination with the battlefields, say, at Normandy and also um, the World War I battlefields in Belgium and France, where collectors will bring back grenades and other keepsakes and, and pieces of um, artillery shells. Um, and there have been accidents in the past where pe- people have, you know, these lay dormant, nothing is happening uh, to them for a long, long time. Uh, and then suddenly an explosion occurs and uh, people are being killed. And it's, uh, it's you know, sadly, it's, it's a common enough occurrence. How much is still out there in terms of munitions, not necessarily just grenades, but guns and, and, and other weaponry? How much is, is not in museums or in collections, for example? I think Ireland being a, being an island nation, I'm not sure there's many guns and rifles out there. There are, as I say, these grenades are turning up because going into the canal is an easy way of getting rid of them. But overall, being an island nation, trying to get a gun into the country was difficult enough for the IRA and prior to that to the Fenians uh, in the 1860s. So kind of illegal collections of weapons are, are, are kind of rare enough. And then you have to remember that in 1919 and 1920, the British government at that stage, anyone who held a, a gun licence had the gun taken off them and, and the weapon put into storage. And the same, something similar happened in 1972 at the beginning of the Troubles. So there's been these kind of regular um, intake of weapons from, from around Ireland. And if you can go back into the 19th century, the first gun licences are introduced in Ireland as a, an experiment by the British government. So even before gun licences are introduced in England, they're introduced in Ireland. So gun ownership in Ireland for legal guns has been well monitored and even for, for legal guns, searches have been carried out. If you look at the, kind of the history books, a lot of the, the famous Thompson machine guns that came in from America in the 1920s, a lot of those were recovered in big, large arms dumps in 1942 and 43. So, um, you know, a lot of this stuff has already been, been taken up. When you look further afield, of course, in, in France and Belgium, I mean, material is cropping up every single day, and that's because those battlefields and the amount of equipment and amount of artillery was fired over a five-year period. And yet people are still actually dying in World War One, more than 100 years later, aren't they? And they have uh, operations in Belgium and in France to collect this ordinance, to salvage this ordinance, don't they? They do. I mean, um, it's estimated that different figures between 25 and 35 percent of the artillery shells fired in Belgium and France didn't actually explode. So even today, material with farmers working in the fields will come across shells. Luckily, a lot of them don't detonate. What the farmers will do is they'll they'll put them over to the side of the field. Um, And then the French army and, and the Belgian army then have bomb squads that will go around to collect this material. Um, in 2017, I was, I was very lucky while over in Ypres to go and visit the Belgian Army's bomb squad there. Um, and they have a huge facility. Um, it, it's, it's kind of eye-watering to look at the amount of uh, World War I artillery shells all stacked, ready to, to go for destruction. They also have a very, very large uh, chemical plant which deals with um, gas shells, so that the famous mustard and chlorine gas, those shells are also coming up, and phosphorus. And they're being dismantled in these very large chemical plants. So the the Belgian government is spending a large amount of money every year uh, making sure that uh, this material is destroyed. So its impact is still there today. And if you look at the casualty rates in and around Ypres, since 1918, um, 360 people have been killed coming across uh, grenades and artillery shells in and around that part of, of Belgium. And probably another 300 have been injured. So as you said correctly, I mean, since 1918, since the end of the war, people are still dying due to this material that's uh, still been found. 
So the moral of the story is, it's a variation, I suppose, of don't try this at home, which is don't bring these things home. Please don't bring these things home. Um, in Ireland, if you ever come across if any questions, I don't think anyone's going to be embarrassed if you ring the local Garda station um, and they will they will contact uh, the bomb squads um, who can come out and, and check it. It's better to be safe in these situations rather than having a, an accident. We leave it there with that warning, Lar. Thank you very much indeed, Lar Joy, for joining us on the History Show to talk about grenades and some of the other century-old munitions that may still be out there. After the break, we'll be talking to author Joe Joyce, the author of the new novel 1691, which deals with the fateful Battle of Ockram of that year. Stay with us. Follow us on Twitter at RTE History Show. Welcome back to The History Show on RTE Radio 1. We're going back now to 1691, an important year in determining the future of Ireland. 1691 also happens to be the title of a new novel by author Joe Joyce. The novel opens in May of that year in the midst of the Nine Years' War. The armies of the English King James and his Dutch usurper King William are on the move again, resuming where they had left off for the winter. The Jacobites, supporters of King James, have been pushed westwards beyond the River Shannon following their defeat at the Battle of the Boyne the previous year. But they're far from beaten. To talk about the history that underpins his book, I'm joined now by Joe Joyce. Joe, you're very welcome indeed to the programme. Thank you, Miles. You're best known, perhaps, I think, for your trilogy of thrillers set in World War II Ireland, starting with Echoland. So... Why did you wind back the clock several centuries to explore the events of 1691? Well, I suppose this is more a labour of love than anything else, Miles. I grew up on the battlefield in Ockram County, Galway, where my father was the principal of the National School and passionately interested in the local history. I like to think of this as the book he intended to write but never got around to during his lifetime. Uh, I'm sure he wouldn't have written it as fiction, but I think he'd be happy that it sticks closely to the facts insofar as we can know them. And your father is, I think, either directly or indirectly responsible for the museum on the site or near the site of the battle. Well, that's true. Yes, he built up a museum in his schoolroom uh, from artefacts, um, mostly found by local farmers plowing their fields and so on. And it developed into a, a wider museum than that of all sorts of local history and uh, artefacts to do with agriculture. But uh, the central aspects of the museum are now in the interpretive centre in, in the village. Now, the subject matter of the book happens during the Nine Years' War, the so-called Nine Years' War of the 1690s. Sometimes, or in some senses, considered to be the first global war, Ireland uh, was involved in it. Why did Ireland become part of this European struggle for power? Well, essentially, France was at war with uh, pretty much all of its neighbours, and the position of England was of crucial importance to both sides. The Grand Alliance, who were fighting France, feared that the Catholic King James of England would join with his cousin Louis XIV of France. And meanwhile, in England, of course, the Protestant Parliament was conspiring to unseat James and replace him with his uh, Protestant Dutch son-in-law, William of Orange, who was the de facto leader of the Grand Alliance. So you had a couple of interests coming together, both local and wider. James was ousted, fled to France, came to Ireland, which was still loyal to him, with the help of Louis and French forces, to use Ireland as a stepping stone to Scotland and ultimately retake England. So the campaign in Ireland uh, was, if you like, a front in the European war, 
as well as being a war to decide the fate of this country, along with that of Scotland and England. Now, when people think about the Jacobite, the Williamite Jacobite Wars, they tend to think of the Battle of the Boyne as being the decisive battle, which is very, very unfair to Ockram. Tell us why the Boyne was not the decisive battle and what happened between the Battle of the Boyne and the Battle of Ockram. Well, the Battle of the Boyne, as everybody knows, was in uh, July 1690. Essentially, the Williamites under uh, William himself won that one. And it wasn't a decisive battle in the sense that either army was uh, absolutely destroyed by it, but it was uh, seen as symbolically and politically more important. I think for two reasons, really, because both of the kings were there for starters, and uh, it opened access uh, for the Williamites to Dublin, which, of course, was the most strategically important city and town in Ireland. The Battle of Ockram then uh, came a year later and was a much more decisive battle in that the uh, Jacobite army was uh, severely depleted as a result of it. What was the lead-up? What was the prelude to the Battle of Ockram? Well, as you said in your intro, the campaign of uh, 1691 started in May. And uh, the reason they started in May actually was simply that uh, there was enough grass in the fields uh, to feed all the horses that were required to move armies around. So at the start of this campaign, the Jacobites were ensconced beyond the River Shannon and in counties Kerry and parts of Cork. And the Williamites set out from Mullingar to try and wrap up the war in Ireland this year. So they seized that loan somewhat against the odds and the Jacobites headed westwards with the options of essentially retreating to Galway or to Limerick. But the French commander, the Marquis de Saint-Roux, decided against the advice of many of his generals to make a stand at the village of Orkram. Now, the book centres on two men. One name, I think, will be very familiar to Irish listeners. The other, not so familiar. Patrick Sarsfield and Hugh Mackay. Tell us about these two men. Yeah, well, as you say, Sarsfield is very familiar to all of us and is very well known as the Irish hero of the war. He was a Catholic, obviously, a career soldier. He was in his mid-30s at this period. During his earlier years, he had lived the life of something of a rake in London, getting involved in duelling and a couple of escapades of kidnapping uh, rich widows, which seemed to be a thing for um, army officers at the time. He actually helped one of his uh, fellow captains at one stage, Robert Clifford, who ended up fighting with him in Ireland, to uh, kidnap a widow to uh, Calais, I think it was in France. But unfortunately, she was well connected to the kings and um, James got his cousin Louis to send a detachment to get her back, which he did, and arrested Clifford. Sarsfield managed to get away and joined the French army for a while. Uh, He subsequently got back to the English army when uh, things had quietened down and went into exile with James when he was overthrown by William of Orange. So he came back with uh, James to Ireland in 1689 at the start of uh, what we call the Williamite War. On the other hand, Hugh Mackay is a Scottish soldier who was also a career soldier. Both he and Sarsfield, in fact, were both very brave soldiers. But Mackay was in the English army and was uh, seconded by the Stuarts at one point to the Dutch army, where he married a Dutch woman and stayed on when the break came between James and William. And in fact, he was one of the... uh, people who accompanied William on his invasion of England. They were very different in personalities. Um, As I say, Sarsfield led something of a rakish life early on. 
Mackay was a very fervent Protestant who was always appalled by the uh, carry-on of his soldiers, the drunkenness and debauchery, and wrote a prayer for them to say uh, on their way into battle. Both men survived the war in Ireland, but didn't survive the subsequent uh, battles of the Nine Years' War uh, on the continent. Now, the Battle of Ockram, I think, was the bloodiest battle ever fought on Irish territory. Um, why was it particularly savage? What what exactly happened? Yes, well, it certainly was one of the bloodiest, if not the bloodiest. Um, the position of Ockram, uh, chosen by the French general saint Roux, was a very good defensive one. It's essentially a long sloping hill ro- running roughly north to south with a marsh to its east so that an enemy we would have to attack the higher ground from through very difficult terrain, which is what proved to happen. Successive waves of infantry attacks by the Williamites across the marsh were repulsed by the Jacobites and fierce cavalry fighting was limited to the southern end of the front where the ground leveled off, but the Williamites made no progress there either. It appeared that they would have to withdraw and in effect suffer a defeat. But in one last desperate effort, they uh, attacked along a narrow causeway at the northern end of the front. The Jacobite defences there had been weakened, so but the Willemite cavalry then managed to break through and attack the infantry defenders from the side. And seeing this, the French general saint Roux led his cavalry to the rescue, but was famously decapitated by a cannonball. And his cavalry gathered up his body and rode away. And the infantry was left to the mercy of the Willemite horsemen, the battle quickly turned from what looked like a victory for the Jacobites into a catastrophe. How many people died in one afternoon in six hours or so of of fighting? Well, it is impossible to know for sure. Uh, The best estimates uh, suggest roughly 6,000 in total, more than two-thirds of them, more than 4,000 on the Jacobite side and the remainder on the Williamite side. And God knows how many were wounded or maimed in, in the exchanges. And to put that into perspective... A friend of mine who encouraged me to write this book, Coleman Morrissey, likes to point out that there were 8,000 killed at the Battle of Gettysburg, which is generally seen as the turning point in the American Civil War. But there were more than 150,000 combatants at Gettysburg, and the battle lasted three days. Uh, At Ockram, there were a total of 40,000 combatants equally divided between both sides, and it lasted an afternoon and evening. So you get some idea of the scale of the slaughter there. And the Jacobite dead were also left unburied on the battlefield. And seemingly there was nobody there to bury them afterwards, leading to graphic descriptions some years later of the bleached bones lying on the hillside like a great flock of sheep. Indeed, there's also a fascinating account some 20 years later of barrels full of skulls from Ockram being shipped from Dublin to England to be ground down, crushed as fertilisers. Now, you mentioned that if your father had been given the opportunity to write the book, that he would probably not have written a novel. Why did you choose to write an historical novel rather than a conventional history book? Essentially, I think because I like the synthesis between fiction and fact. Um, I've written non-fiction books in the past, notably in collaboration with uh, Peter Murta, and I've written contemporary thrillers, although that was so long ago now that they could be classed as historical fiction as well. And as you mentioned, my most recent uh, thrillers, the Echoland series set in Dublin during the um, emergency of the Second World War. So when it came to writing about 1691, I never really considered writing it as a conventional history book. I liked the idea not of fictionalizing the story, 
but have been able to delve into the personalities of the people involved, bring out the nuances and uh, their friendships and enmities and all the uncertainties that they faced in their daily uh, decisions. Unlike the Echoland series, where the characters and plots are mostly invented against uh, a background of real events, there are no made-up characters in uh, in this book. Everybody mentioned in it uh, was a real person, as were the events. Now, you've to some extent, you've you've fictionalized, or at least you have written fiction. Although, as you say, uh, you have uh, written a very factual fictionalized account but you've still engaged in a certain amount of very interesting revisionism because the accepted version of events casts Henry Luttrell in a bad light he's seen as a traitor but in the book the way you write the book he may not actually have been one explain who Henry Luttrell was and and what you've found out that is true. Um, when you put yourself back into the time and place, uh, a somewhat different story emerges about about Henry Luttrell. And he may well have been the victim of a very clever piece of Williamite psychological warfare, uh, which helped to destroy his posthumous reputation. He was a cavalry colonel at Ockram, and as you mentioned, has gone down in history as a, a traitor for letting the Williamite cavalry through what is still known in the village as Luttrell's Pass. And he later joined the Williamites and was given a handsome pension by the British government. But in the immediate aftermath of the battle, there was no indication that Luttrell was treated as a traitor. His position in the army and his close friendship with Patrick Sarsfield continued. But the sequence of events that uh, led to this uh, interesting piece of uh, what we would now call psyops or psychological warfare came after the surrender of Galway as its garrison was uh, allowed to go to Limerick and was escorted part of the way by a Williamite cavalry. Luttrell was sent from Limerick by the Jacobites to take over from the escort. At the handover, the Williamite commander asked him why the Jacobites were continuing to fight after their enormous defeat at Ockram, and Luttrell replied with his own question, asking him, did the Williamite General Ginkle have full powers to conclude a treaty? That was it until several weeks later when the French Jacobite general in Limerick received a message from a French Williamite general whom he had met in Galway. The Williamite general told him that a secret message was being sent to Luttrell answering his question. So when the messenger arrived the secret message was found. Luttrell was immediately arrested and court-martialed but he was acquitted of negotiating with the enemy even though the court-martial had been formed by his opponents within the Jacobite army. However, he was kept imprisoned in uh, King John's castle by his erstwhile friend Sarsfield until after the treaty was signed, and he then joined the Williamites as a small minority of Jacobites did under the treaty's terms, and he negotiated a pension for himself if his military services were dispensed with. What was his ultimate fate? What became of Luttrell then? Uh, His ultimate fate was uh, not a good one. He wasn't given a, a military position in the Williamite army, but he received the pension he had negotiated instead, and he took over the family lands at Luttrellstown in West Dublin from his older brother Simon, who had gone through France with Sarsfield. Uh, Sixteen years later, he was shot on what is now Wolf Tongue Street in Dublin. And part of the traditional story is that his assassin was somebody who survived Ockram. At the time, however, it was believed to have been an irate husband. Luttrell was a well-known womanizer, or someone who hoped to inherit his lands but no one was ever charged with the murder. So what happens then after 
the Battle of Ockram. You talked about the Siege of Galway and then the Siege of Limerick, the Treaty of Limerick. What happens then? Well, essentially, Galway uh, uh, surrendered after a couple of weeks. And uh, it's a, a siege that is actually quite interesting and is usually glossed over pretty quickly in the history books in the sense that it's a paragraph between Ockram and Limerick. And uh, Limerick, of course, the siege lasted for three months or so and ended up, as you say, with with the treaty and the bulk of the Jacobite army going on to France in the hopes of invading England the following summer, which was a very real plan at the time and was only thwarted by the defeat of the French Navy in the English Channel by a Dutch-English fleet sometime in early 1692. What was the impact then of the events in Ireland on the greater conflict, on the European conflict, on the the so-called Nine Years' War? Well, it closed down what you might call the Western Front in that war between France and the Grand Alliance of its neighbours. Ireland and England were put firmly in the anti-French camp and it allowed the majority of the Williamite army eventually to move to the continent and reinforce the Grand Alliance there. And many of the people mentioned in the book, and the generals mentioned in the book, uh, including, of course, Sarsfield, whom we all know died on a continental battlefield. But uh, so did Hugh Mackay and uh, another man called Thomas Talmash, who was an English general in the Williamite army. So the book is called 1691, a novel. It's self-published by Joe Joyce, available in paperback and ebook. To be sure to, to, to get hold of a copy, go to joejoyce.ie or search for 1691 on Amazon if you're interested in reading this new historical novel about the seminal events of that year. Joe, many thanks indeed for joining us on The History Show this evening. Thank you, Miles. Well, that's about all we've got time for on this evening's programme. Details of all our items, as well as podcasts, are available on our website, rte.ie forward slash history show. Next week on the programme, we'll be exploring the radical life of Margaret Skinner, who is the subject of a new biography by Dr. Mary McAuliffe. We'll end tonight with some music, though, as uh, we've just been hearing about that seminal battle in 1691. This is the Chieftain's version of the Battle of Ockram. Our researcher is Liz Gillis. The History Show is a Pegasus production for RTE. For now, for me, Miles Dungan, and producer Lorcan Clancy, goodbye and thanks for listening.
us on Twitter at RTE History Show. <laughs>